This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. Is not here is because we are going to be interviewing her husband, Keith, tonight, and somebody had to watch their uh, watch their brood of children. Um, before we get started, let me tell you about some events that are coming up. So uh, tomorrow night, May 25th, the Monticello area, area affiliate is going to be having their annual convention and their May meetup at the Buff in Big Lake. That's at 7 o'clock. Um, this Sunday, the board is having our, uh, our very first, uh, hopefully of many, retreat. Um, so that's going to be great. We're going to come out of that uh, kind of recentered and ready to lead this party to victory. Uh, June 7th, Grand Old Day. You should be getting emails to sign up to volunteer there. There are still a few slots open. Um, I'll put a link to the sign-up sheet in the show notes as well, if I remember to do to, to do that. Um, and then if you're a Legacy Club member, which is uh, the sort of highest level of membership at the LPMN, um, we've got a big river, river boat cruise coming up on July 7th. Uh, so I encourage everyone to become a member of the Legacy Club. I'm a member, and uh, there, you know, th there are certain perks, such as getting to attend these cool little cruises and stuff. So without further ado, let's continue our veteran series with Mr. Keith Whiting. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for filling in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi, totally. Um, so uh, we're continuing our veteran series, but before we do that. I just lost audio. I can't hear what you're saying. Our normal co-host and... There we go. Hey, James, you want to start that over? We kind of we're cutting in out a little bit there. Still can't hear you. See, I can see you, but I can't hear you. Say something now, James. How about now? Now I can hear you. All right. Um, yeah, like we were talking about before, my internet's also been kind of cutting in and out today. It sounded like Keith was having a little bit of problems. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of turn everything off that I've got on my computer to make sure that this dumb streaming program is taking up all my bandwidth. Okay, so have you guys been able to hear me for the last like 15 seconds or so? Yes. Yes. All right, cool. Good. Um, so Keith, before we get started on your on your uh, military service, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself? Um, other than, you know, the, the husband of our esteemed vice chair and normal host of this show. Um, well, I'm Keith Whiting, and I live up in northern Minnesota in Bemidji on a small farm. And, you know, if any of you have talked with Rebecca or watched the podcast, you've probably seen a little bit about that. We've got a lot of kids and a lot of animals running around. And, um, yeah, I spent uh, eight years when I was young in the Army. And since I got out, I've spent time doing construction, driving truck, and I'm currently a heavy equipment mechanic. Cool. And you're also the affiliate chair up there, right? Yes, I am. Sweet. Uh, and y'all, when do y'all meet? What's your, uh, what's your meeting schedule? Typically, it's the second Saturday of every month, but we did take last month off. All right. Great. Yeah. So if you're up in the Bemidji area or in that congressional district, then be sure to show up. Um, I think y'all y'all just do it at your house, right? It's not like at a bar or anything like that. Because um, we have been lately. We've got some families besides mine with a bunch of kids that come, yeah. so you know, gives them a place, safe place for the kids to run around and play. 
Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Down here in the cities, it's always at bars. So <laughs> a little change of pace is kind of nice. Although I could see Nate Atkins doing it at his house. Nate, if you're listening, you know, that's an idea. Uh, he likes to throw parties. So, um, all right, great. Well, let's get into it, Keith. Um, so you were talking before we started. Uh, you you had a lot of different a lot of different places that you were stationed. Um, do you just kind of want to talk about your service and kind of what you did in the various and sundry places that that uh, you you were you were at? Yeah. Um, so I was in the army and I was an infantryman. That was my job. And so, um, really that is like, if you're playing, you know, playing army or playing GI Joe, you're basically infantry. You're running around with a gun, you know? And after my basic training, my first duty assignment was in Korea and I spent a little over a year there. The U.S. has had forces in Korea ever since the Korean War and just maintains a certain level of troops over there on various bases. And uh, during my time in Korea, it was really just training, you know, just continuing to train. And then they would have us do uh, preparedness drills, basically, in case there were ever hostilities between North and South Korea that we had to respond to. So you know, an alarm would go off at like three in the morning and we'd have to jump out of bed and get everything ready and get loaded up and go to our fighting positions. So that's what my time was like in Korea. Um, after that, we, we deployed from Korea to Iraq, which was unusual. And I think that's the only time the army's actually done that. They sent the entire brigade over to Iraq and we were stationed in the Habania and Ramadi area, right in between Fallujah and Ramadi, pretty much. Um, kind of the heart of the Sunni triangle and a lot of the fighting over there. And my job while I was there, for the most part, was trying to keep the roads open. So we would go out and we would patrol the roads or sit and just watch and try and prevent people from placing roadside bombs and stuff like that so that other convoys of vehicles and everything could get through those roads. That was my primary mission. And during that time, I ended up getting promoted to sergeant. So I started taking responsibility of other soldiers at that point and being became a leader in the army. Um, then after that, I went to Fort Carson, Colorado. And again, we knew we were deploying again, you know, by the time we got there, we already knew that we only had about a year and then we were going back to Iraq. So we just trained up for that and tried to, you know, make sure we were ready. And then the second deployment was back to Iraq. And that time I was in the Baghdad area. And so we, uh, we were in Baghdad during the surge and we ended up being there for 15 months. And it was um, a very active war zone at that time for a lot of it. And um, we, again, that time we were not just trying to keep roads open for my mission. We were um, trying to keep people safe and secure in their neighborhoods. Um, And so we were more like police at that point where we would just have a certain neighborhood that we would patrol and that's our area that we were responsible for. Um, And we did that, like I said, for 15 months. 
after that, it was back to the States. And for me, I was already on orders to go to drill sergeant school. So I went through the training to become a drill sergeant and then was stationed at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And that's where I spent the rest of my time in the army because by then I had gotten married and started a family and was tired of never being home. So I decided to get out at that point in time after my time as drill sergeant was over. Oh, there. I'm good. There Thanks for that intro um, on that. And I appreciate you breaking that down as being a, a not in the military. Um, some of the terminology over the last few episodes, I've had to <laughs> Google on the fly to understand. So yes, thanks same. for breaking some of that down. And more importantly, thank you for your service, because that's an yeah. important thing that, that you did for our country. Can, can you talk a little bit about you mentioned that your your first time you deployed directly from Korea, and that was a bit unusual. Most deployments, do they come from the United States? Yeah, so your tour in Korea is considered a hardship tour. You're not allowed to take your family, um, you know, and it's usually only a one-year tour. And um, you're considered kind of like you're already deployed. So in, in a potentially hostile environment, even though it, it hasn't been um, for a very long time, but there is that potential. So to take troops from that already kind of deployed status and then deploy them to a you know current war zone is just something that the Army had not been doing at that point, at least not during Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so they actually, there were family members back in the States who heard on CNN that they were going to take, you know, 4,000 or however many soldiers from Korea and send them to Iraq. And so soldiers in Korea are asking their commanders about this. They're like, hey, you know, my wife or parents or whoever said that they're going to take soldiers from Korea, send us to Iraq. And so they called a big meeting and they, they had everybody go in there and the commander got in front of everybody and is like, look, this is bogus. There's, you know, it's not happening. The army, you're already deployed. The army would not take you and send you to Iraq. You're staying in Korea. And the very next day they had us just shut down the training that we were doing, stop everything and go to back to our company areas and our company commanders are like, okay, we have orders. We're going to Iraq. So, I mean, even our commanders, you know, from one day to the next, they had no clue. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, yeah, it is real. We are going. That's what I was going to ask if they were kind of kept in the dark on that as well. And that sounds like that was the case. Mm -hmm. hmm. And then between your first do tour over in Iraq and the second tour deployment over there. It sounds like those were, were two different missions as well. Yeah. That that second yeah. mission a lot more hostile. Um probably not necessarily more hostile. Um it, it was different though. The first deployment, it was 
I think we were a lot more aggressive during the first deployment. Um, as far as just how we responded to things. Um, and we were less concerned with peacekeeping, less concerned with collateral damage. Um, and honestly, during that one for, for my unit, because of our mission of just trying to keep the road open, which we, we named it Mad Max. You know, that was what we called it because we're in these armored vehicles driving up and down the roads trying not to get blown up. Um, you know, it really was just about survival at that point in time for us. <clears throat> um, so the second deployment that I was on, you know, for, for my unit, my mission, um, we really were trying to root out the people that were definitely working against the Americans. So we spent a lot of time talking to the Iraqi people in our neighborhoods, you know, and trying to figure out who are the people in these neighborhoods that are causing problems that are, you know, fighting against the Americans that are um, murdering their neighbors in a lot of cases, um, things like that, and trying to find out who's the, who those people were. And then we actually, we would have to get sworn statements from Iraqis, the locals, uh, about these different people and what they had done. And then we would go and detain them and we'd take them to a detention facility. Um, so that mission, it really was a lot more like law enforcement, just trying to find the people, you know, that were doing what we were saying they weren't supposed to do and then get them locked up. Um, and that second deployment, it was still pretty hostile. Um, and there was definitely a lot of danger, but we also developed a lot more relationships with the Iraqi people and worked more hand in hand with them. Um, so we even helped them set up their own little neighborhood watches um, to where they were trying to keep their own neighborhood safe and keep the people we had classified as terrorists or whatever, keep them out of there. Hmm. I so I came from the anti-war left to libertarianism. So like uh, you know, I found Ron Paul because he was the good Republican or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the and you know, I mean, broadly, I think we probably would benefit from having an anti-war left that was you know that's the size that it was back then. But as we know about our progressive friends, they tend to hyperbolize a little bit. Um, so finding out that you were one of the, you know, cops or whatever that were roaming the streets of Iraq, some of the stories that I heard back then were, I mean, it was like from a, it was like from a dystopian novel where the shock troops would just come and, you know, kidnap people from their houses and hoods uh, in the middle of the night. Um, is that, is that accurate? Was that actually going on? Did you do it? So there, there was some of that. Um, and there are some things that I've had to, to come to terms with. Um, and I guess one example that I have, and this is where it was a little different, um, during my second deployment when we were kind of in that position, um, 
because we worked in that same neighborhood and we knew the people and um, we were well known there and kind of respected. So there was one day we came out and there were a bunch of people out in the front yard. Something had happened during the night. And so we stopped and found out that um, a different unit of army soldiers had come in in the middle of the night and they, you know, used grenades and everything else and gone in and yeah, just drug people out in the middle of the night and taken the family's money and, you know, everything like they, like that they're, um, because they, they say they're using it for terrorist activities or whatever, you know, and kind of left the, the family, um, without their men, which in that culture, if the men aren't there, that's really hard on the family, you know, and without their money. And there had been a baby that had been injured by fragments from a grenade. Um, and even if that other unit had evidence that the two guys they detained were bad guys, you know, as far as you can call any of them bad guys, um, if they had just told us, Hey, these are the two guys we're looking for. We could have walked in there in the middle of the day and just taken them out without anybody getting hurt, without any use of force or anything like that, because we had a relationship in that area, you know, and we, we were, people expected us to go door to door and stop at everybody's houses and stuff. Cause we did that for months. So it could have been handled a lot differently. Um, and so, yeah, and at that time frame, in that location, it would have gone like that. There were other locations, though, where, I mean, it probably wouldn't have been safe for Americans to try and do it that way. Um, you know, and looking back and having, you know, changed a lot myself, I see these people that I, you know, I, I use the term bad guys because they were, they were my enemy at the time, you know, and looking back, a lot of them were probably just people like me who wanted to be left alone and somebody has invaded their home, you know? And so, so I hesitate to even use that term, but I don't have a better one at the moment. They were the people that were my enemy at the time. Right. And that's understandable. And and that actually is a good segue to a question that I had been thinking about. And that is the kind of feelings that the Iraqis had when Americans were there. Did you see any change in your time there or was it, what was that feeling like? Um, early on, there were a lot of people that would, you know, wave at us as we went by. So, cause my first deployment was 2004. So that was still fairly early on, um, you know, because we'd gone in in 2003. And there were a lot of people who would, you know, wave and cheer and say, Americans, Americans, you know, stuff like that. And they seemed pretty happy to see us. And part of that depends on where you were also. Um, a lot of my time was spent in the Sunni Triangle area, which... Um, the Sunnis in Iraq are the minority of the major groups, um, the Sunni and the Shia. Um, 
but they were the ones in control of the government. And so being in those Sunni areas, those were the people that had lost their position, lost their money, whatever, lost everything when the Saddam regime fell. So in those areas where I was, there were a lot of people that they were never happy to see Americans. Um, and then over time, it, it really did vary a lot because the American units were always changing. Some were good, some were bad. Um, I think more than anything, the Iraqi people were just very cautious about Americans because they didn't know what they were going to get. Um, and for us, we developed relationships with the people that second deployment, um, we had a, a tip line that they could call to say, hey, somebody's putting a bomb in the road over here, you know. And we had some people that would call our tip line and invite us to come over and have tea. Um, so they weren't necessarily opposed to Americans. A lot of them weren't. Um, and a lot of them didn't want the people that were placing bombs and shooting at other people in their neighborhoods. So we did have quite a bit of cooperation in that area. So that part as to what we were hearing back here in the States was that we were the great liberators and we were very welcome. So that part sounds like there was some of that over there that people were thinking. Now, was, was there, and I don't know my history on Iraq as much as I should, but was there a lot of oppression from the Shiites by the Sunnis when they were in power? Yeah, so the government, they were very oppressive, um, mostly against anybody that just didn't do what the government wanted him to do. Mm. Um, now, as far as just Sunni versus Shia, if it was worse with that government in place, I'm not sure. Um, I know there were times when I was there where, I don't know if it was just retaliation, but there was still a lot of Sunni versus Shia um, hostility. Um where they were, you know, fighting each other, killing each other. Um, there was quite a bit of that going on while I was there. Oh, um, so the, this is, this is tough to hear. Is it tough to talk about or have you, have you kind of come to grips with it or, or? I've mostly come to grips with it. So kind of the hard part is talking about my change of perspective you know, because at the time, you know, I thought what I was doing was right. You know, so coming to terms with, you know, being wrong on that, that is uncomfortable. <laughs> sure. It's uncomfortable to think about. It's uncomfortable to talk about. Um, but I did uh, quite a few years ago. I pretty much just came to the decision that, I was going to be honest with people if they ask me about my experiences and stuff. Um, you know, cause there are a lot of veterans that, that don't want to talk about it or there are veterans that will kind of sugarcoat things or gloss over things. Um, but I did a long time ago, I decided I will just be honest if anybody wants to know. And so I guess that's a good segue into like, how did you, how did you start, kind of coming around to more non-interventionist views? 
so it, it, it took a lot of time probably. And it was, it was mostly due to just not really wanting to see things from that perspective, you know, cause knowing what I had done and at the time, you know, I was proud to be a soldier, you know, and to do my job and proud of my service and everything. And so over the course of several years, um, and it really just kind of started happening in the last couple of years. I'm trying to remember. I feel like there was something that just made me see it. I just, there was one day I just kind of came to the realization. I was like, you know, those people that were my enemy in Iraq are probably people a lot like me, you know, and they're probably people that just, don't want an invader, you know, in their, where they live, you know, they don't want foreign troops on their soil because those kinds of things, I mean, I would fight back against those kinds of things if it was happening here. And so maybe there were weapons of mass destruction. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, I don't think we had very good reasons for going to war over there for what happened. Um, and I don't think they're any better off now than they were under Saddam. Although I could be wrong. Maybe it is, if it is better, I don't think it's a lot better. Um, but spending as many years as we did and costing as many American lives as it did over there, just it definitely wasn't worth it in my opinion. But yeah, that change was when I really just realized that those were probably just people like me and, and I was the, the invader. But part of the being in the military is your responsibility or your jobs to follow orders. Correct. You're not allowed to really give much thought or have a conversation about why we're doing this this is what we're told to do and we do it yeah there is that and soldiers are typically brainwashed in my opinion at a very young age usually you know most troops joining are pretty young and um so it's it's pretty easy to like in the infantry you know the training you know you sing cadences about, you know, killing and, you know, you talk about and think about fighting the enemy and winning, you know, so you get in that mi mindset of, I mean, A, we all want to think we're the good guy, you know, nobody wants to really just think, hey, I'm the bad guy or my country are the bad guys. That's not, you know, common, um, not for people that join the military anyway. Um, so then it's easy to brainwash them to just be like, well, uh, I'm going to fight because this is what we're supposed to do. You know, we're the good guys and we're fighting the bad guys. And so, yeah, I'm going to go do what I have to do and follow orders and, and whatever that means. And some of that hearing what, what you were saying about being over there and the hostility too, is, is just survival, right? I mean, mm -hmm. staying alive. Yeah. Yeah, if somebody tries to kill you, I mean, the, you know, my instinct and the instinct of everybody, most of the people around me anyway, is to fight back. Mm -hmm. 
tell me about your time as a drill sergeant. We so everybody's seen movies where the drill sergeant is like the bad guy, and I don't think there's ever been a movie that's like about a drill sergeant. And I don't know if I've ever met someone who I knew was a drill sergeant. Um, so like, uh, what I mean, like, what's it like? Do they teach you how to yell? Is that is that like part of it? <laughs> um, so it's changed a lot, probably from. I mean, I think the the golden standard is probably Full Metal Jacket. Um, with the drill sergeant scenes in there. And it definitely was a lot more like that in the past. Um, by the time I went through my basic training, there were a lot of things drill sergeants weren't allowed to do anymore that they would have gotten away with before. And then even from then till when I was a drill sergeant, um, we weren't supposed to, you know, curse at any of the trainees we weren't supposed to call them anything besides like soldier or warrior or something like that. I think we're the only things we were supposed to call them or call them by their name. Um, and definitely couldn't lay hands on them, you know, even if they needed it. Um, so there was still definitely a lot of yelling. And then if they needed some correction, um, make them do push-ups or make them do some sprints or something like that. Uh, you kind of had to get creative. I enjoyed my time as a drill sergeant. I do like teaching people. Um, and it was material that I was very familiar with. So being able to teach that to these trainees, I enjoyed that part of it. And I also enjoyed messing with people because that was a big part of it. You know, you, you maybe can't, you know, lay hands on them, but you can break them mentally and emotionally pretty easy. You know, it was, mm -hmm. I enjoyed getting to mess with them. So you'd get different things where one drill sergeant would tell them to do something. And then their other drill sergeant would tell them not to do it. As soon as that drill sergeant goes the other way, I wouldn't last a day. In the and then he comes back <laughs> and was like, well, why aren't you doing it? You know, so it's things like that. And they don't know what to do. Everything they do is wrong. Um, and I had gone through it myself. So I really didn't feel bad doing it to other people. <laughs> but it's, it's things like that that help toughen them mentally and emotionally which if they're going to go to combat, it is important to build that mental and emotional toughness. And it also weeds out people, you know, that was part of it because there are some people that are just not going to make it in the, in the military. And the sooner that's figured out and they get out of there, the better. Keith, the, the part that you hit on with the, the mental toughness, we've heard a lot of, that's coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan with PTSD. Um, I guess from a government's perspective, what sort of things you guys and women put your lives on the line to do the duty for our country? What what sort of things should, in your opinion, the government be doing to, to help kind of bring people back in a, a way to reintroduce them into society and the way of living versus what they're experiencing overseas? That's 
Kind of a deep question. Um, so, and and it's a it's a complicated issue because everybody's so different. I mean, you can take six people, put them in the same situation, and it's going to affect them all differently. So, as far as trying to help these people reintegrate, um, three of them might be fine without any help at all. And you might have one that, you know, spends a good bit of time in and out of mental health facilities and is just unable to cope. Um, so having, I mean, if the government's going to send people to war and, you know, put them in these situations, I do feel like the government should then make sure they're taken care of afterwards. Um, obviously, I would prefer it if the government wasn't creating veterans, but... As it is, if these veterans aren't getting help from the VA, they're probably not going to get it from anywhere in most cases. So having that available is, is important. And, and it's going to look different for everybody. Um, I know veterans who have spent um, years of their life living in a facility that is for veterans that are struggling with PTSD. And it has taken them years to get to a point where they are able to get out and function on their own. Um, and then I know others who've gone, you know, 10, 15 years without any help at all. And, you know, and honestly, some of them seem fine. But then just in, I think, January, one of my friends committed suicide, you know, and like three weeks earlier, he was posting pictures on Facebook of his new puppy that he just got, you know, and then all of a sudden he's gone. And so even when people seem like they're doing fine, it's really just hard to know if they really are and hard to know what they need and how to help them. And I know that the military has tried to do better and the VA has tried to do better. Um, so even when I was still in, when we'd come home from deployments, we went through all kinds of medical screening, including um, mental health screening. And so they would try to get people the help they need. And at that time, it was tough partly because there were no providers available. You know, everybody was booked out. So they'd be like, yeah, you need to see a mental health doctor. Here's your appointment in eight months, mm. you know, and some of that's gotten better. So the VA has started doing a lot more outpatient care, referring veterans to local providers instead of having to see a VA doctor. Um, but like in this area, the local providers are booked out too, for the most part. Um, there's big mental health issues outside of the veterans. Um, you know, that there's really just a shortage of doctors and facilities in this area, at least. So trying to get help, even when the VA is providing it, is kind of a struggle. 
Well, it sounds like we'd be better off if our government maybe took some of that money that they allocate to the military and, as you had said earlier, made less veterans and maybe put some of that money more towards services for the veterans that we have. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that and if the private sector knows there's a bunch of government funds going into mental health and the private sector is going to try and answer that and, you know, and fill that need and take that money. <laughs> So, you know, um, if that's how the government decided to spend the money. Sure. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Keith. So I, I think it was Rand Paul, maybe. Somebody somebody called for, like, complete privatization of the VA. Like, just fund it, but let the veterans go to whatever hospital or mental health professional or whatever that they want to. Um, and... On its face, and you know, obviously from the libertarian perspective, that seems like a good idea. But on the other hand, do you think that veterans would, especially veterans struggling with PTSD, um, who are already untrusting, would they be less willing to go to a private practice therapist or counseling service than they would be to go to like something that's tailor made for veterans by the by the armed services, arm, the 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 military? I don't really think that would be an issue because I think for the most part the the guys that aren't going to go seek help I don't think it's going to matter whether it's the VA or private sector um, but also because most veterans realize that if the army is running it it's probably more screwed up than the private sector <laughs> you know so it's yeah, like yeah. we don't think that the VA is better you know we don't think their you know behavioral health doctors are better than the private sector um, and, and I've met some great VA doctors, you know, I, I have, there are definitely some there, but overall, I mean, you know, what do they, what do they call it? A uh, military grade, military grade is not necessarily better. You know, it's made by the lowest bidder. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, it, it, it's the same with healthcare, military grade healthcare is not necessarily better. Hmm. Well, and, and from you being the chair of your affiliate up in Beltrami County, right? Is that the, yep. yeah. Um, I guess from a libertarian party perspective, what sort of things would you like to see our party advance from a veteran standpoint? Hmm. From a veteran standpoint, I've never really thought of it like that. I, typically, when I think of the the party, I think we need to we need membership. We need to recruit, get more people involved. Um, from a veteran standpoint, just continuing to be anti-war. You know, I think that's that's the biggest thing. I know the party's been involved in, or at least attended some rallies. You know, defend the guard and things like that. Um, just being vocal about that, making sure people know we're anti-war. Um, and and honestly, I think for people to hear from veterans that are anti-war is probably a good thing, you know, and because we do have the perspective of having been there and done that and the fallout from that. Um so yeah, any any anti-war thing because just trying to not create more veterans is is the best option. Sure. 
That's yep. And as far as the, you mentioned a little bit about like not, not having a lot of, and this comes from last week's conversation with Jake. We, we talked a little bit about the, the kind of uh, groups. So back in after Vietnam, we saw a lot of the VFWs and the legions. Um, mm -hmm. th those don't seem to be as frequented these days as they seem to be losing. Is, is there anything that you think would, would help veterans with having some sort of a connection with other vets? I, I definitely think having that connection is is a good thing. Um, as far as a group or organization, you know, that's kind of doing that, I, you know, I, I've never even really looked into the VFW or anything just to see what it's all about. You know, I, I mean, I know they have a bunch of old guys do a flag ceremony on Memorial Day, you know, and that's about it. So, and part of it too, in Bemidji, the, the VFW doesn't have their own building anymore. They just meet in, you know, a, one wing of a bar that somebody else owns at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that connection and getting together is a good thing. But I think also that um, veterans today uh, just... What's a good way to put this? Probably feel more disconnected from their communities than like the World War II veterans. So now Vietnam veterans, they obviously, you know, were, you know, spit on and everything else when they came home. Um, and those guys, they kind of needed to get together with each other, probably, you know, with other veterans. Um, but I, I think the, the digital world might have a lot to do with the disconnect nowadays. Um, so many people spend so much of their time online playing video games or on their phones doing things or whatever, that just going out in general is not as common as it had been because people are just finding whatever entertainment at home and it's kind of more a cultural thing in general than just a veteran thing. I think. Yeah, I can see that. All right. Well, um, I guess as we kind of start to wind down, uh, Troy, Keith, is there anything else that you'd like to throw in? Well, I, I guess I, I would be curious from, from Keith kind of uh, coming up here with our first retreat this weekend, um, kind of what sort of things you're you're hoping to see for your affiliate up in Beltrami? Um, being, you know, distant from where a lot of the party things happen and being up here you know, just anything that's that involves kind of recruiting members, you know, whether that's getting, you know, names and numbers of people that are on the lists that we have, you know, that have signed up that, you know, are interested or just getting 
members from other affiliates to come and do a larger event or something like that uh, up in this area, anything like that that will kind of draw more people in and even just ideas on what's worked for other people for recruiting new members and stuff. Cause you know, up here, um, the population density is a lot lower and um, that provides a challenge. Everything's further apart, you know, so there's people that are in my county that live probably 45 minutes away or more, you know, of like rural dirt roads and stuff. Um, and not every county up here has an affiliate. So it's, we take people from all our surrounding counties as well. Um, so people could end up traveling an hour and a half to two hours to find an affiliate. Um, so just anything that helps with growth and recruiting is something I'm interested in. Um, I also am interested in uh, party marketing, you know, like how is the party marketing itself? Because I haven't seen a lot of that in the past. And I think that's something that would help with recruiting new members. Well, we have a new communications director that I, I think has a lot to say, say about if, that. If anybody knows who the communication director is, maybe we can talk to that uh, Yeah, Keith, I'll get in touch with you for marketing stuff. That's uh, that's that's definitely a place where we need help. Um, cool. Well, um, should we should we call it a night, guys? Or uh, do you do you feel like we've uh, exhausted the the Keith Whiting journey from <laughs> infantryman to leader of an affiliate for the Libertarian Party of Minnesota? Yeah, I'd say so. You're both, I mean, I could, you're, both, I could, you're both nodding. So, uh, for those, <laughs> those listening to the podcast who can't see it, that's what that's what just happened there. Yeah, I think it's been a great conversation, and Keith, thank you for being open about a lot of that yeah. stuff here. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us tonight. And much like you were saying about your affiliate, we're we're in that same thing here in the Monticello area, trying to to get into growth mode and. Yeah, so I'm excited about this upcoming retreat and hopefully a lot of good ideas come out of that. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me. Thank you, Keith. Absolutely. And Troy, thanks. Uh, Keith, let Rebecca know that she's back on duty next week because um, I don't I don't, I don't, don't want to do this every Wednesday. <laughs> 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 All right, I'll see y'all later. Have a good Thanks, James. Thanks, Keith. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Keith. Absolutely. And Troy, thanks. Uh, Keith, let Rebecca know that she's back on duty next week because um, I don't, I don't. I don't want to do this every Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see y'all later. Have a Thanks, good one. Thanks, James. Thanks, Keith. Bye.